0: I'm Phoebe White from the U.S. Rate Strategy Team at J.P. Morgan. You're listening to, at any rate, our global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends, themes, and industries in markets today. On the phone with me today, I have Mike Feroli, our Chief U.S. Economist, and Jay Barry, Head of U.S. Government Bond Strategy, to talk about what we learned from the FOMC meeting last week and the tools the Fed could use going forward. So Mike, the Fed funds rate is back at the lower bound and the pace of asset purchases has been tapered substantially, but the growth outlook is still uncertain. So what could the Fed do from here to stimulate the economy?
1: Right. So thanks, Phoebe. Um, Last week, uh, the Fed indicated that their focus is still pretty much on their lending programs. So these include uh, the various supports to corporate credit markets, to funding markets, and to non-financial firms themselves in the form of the Main Street Lending facility. Now, some of those uh, facilities are up and running; uh, others are still in the design stage, and that seems to be where the Fed's uh, focus is right now. Uh, and there's not much focus, though, on what we would consider traditional monetary policy, which is to say, short-term interest rates or expectations about the path of short-term interest rates. And it appears as though the reason that's not a focus right now is that the Fed uh, doesn't see any rate hikes really priced in. And so, when asked about this, uh, you know, using forward guidance or or asset purchases uh Powell indicated that uh that's not really uh a big priority right now, given that there's no real rate hikes priced in, so there's no expectation of rate hikes to lean against through either uh, some type of Evans rule or through yield curve control or through asset purchases. so right now uh the focus is really on these lending tools, so this kind of uh acting as an actual commercial bank to to many uh final borrowers uh and that that will probably be the priority I think for the next several weeks at least.
0: Jay, let's talk about the Treasury purchases for a second. What happened in the market that forced the Fed to step in and buy Treasuries at such an unprecedented pace these last six weeks?
2: Thanks, Phoebe. And yes, it's been quite a six week. So if we take a look back at what happened in the early middle part of March, um, there was a tremendous amount of volatility in the Treasury market. And 30-year bond yields traversed a 120 basis point range in the middle of that month. Um, and delivered volatility averaged almost 25 basis points per day over a two-week span, which is really the largest volatility that we've seen in more than 30 years uh, since the Black Monday equity crash in 1987. And while it had been a long time since we've seen that volatility, it's even more striking now because long-term rate levels are so much lower than they were at that time. So given this increase in volatility, we saw most of our favorite measures of treasury market liquidity deteriorate quite substantially. And treasury market depth, which is one that we discuss quite frequently, fell to levels that were reserved not just for the financial crisis, but even just the days around year end in 2008. And we even saw that the impact of transacting in the treasury market had increased um, about fivefold from average levels that had persisted beforehand. So we've noted for a while that treasury market structure has changed as such over the past decade or so where there has been a large increase in the participation of high frequency trading participants um, and as vol increases they tend to step away which sort of creates this negative feedback loop where liquidity deteriorates further so those are the dynamics that contributed to sort of the deterioration in liquidity in march but as that occurred we saw some very unusual behavior ordinarily during high times of heightened uncertainty Demand for treasuries increases as investors look for safe, liquid assets um, and yields decline as a corollary. But during the throes of dysfunction in the middle of March, treasury yields were actually rising even as risk assets were selling off. And this was really a function of investors selling the most liquid product they own to meet their demands for liquidity. And in March, we saw large scale selling from domestic bond funds, from foreign official institutions, reserve managers, and from leveraged investors as well. And as a result, uh, dealer positions in treasuries increased more than 40% over a three-week span in the early to middle part of March. But as these positions increased, it became harder for dealers to hold it, primarily because post-crisis regulation now means that primary dealers have to hold capital against risk-free assets like treasuries and reserves. So the size of those positions were becoming a constraint, making it harder for dealers to intermediate in treasuries. And it was really against this backdrop that the Fed stepped in at an unprecedented pace. So it's bought over $1.4 trillion in treasuries over a six-week span, which is about a 7% share of GDP and a 9% share of the treasury market, which as a function of this, treasury market functioning has improved vastly. And looking at a combination of factors from realized volatility to treasury market depth to the dispersion along our par curve of treasury off the runs, And it appears that we're about 80% of the way back to where we were uh, beforehand. So this was the backdrop to which the Fed started these historically large purchases in the middle of March.
0: Got it. So market conditions are improving a lot. um, But Powell also said last week that he'd continue to do these purchases as needed um, and also acknowledged that the purchases would continue to ease Financial conditions. So, how are these purchases impacting rate levels? And then, also given that the conditions have improved so much, what do you think that means for the path of purchases from here?
2: Sure. So, over a longer period of time, we tend to look at long term treasury yields and model them as a function of how the market's pricing the Fed inflation and growth over a longer period. Um, And this explains a large part of the volatility in treasuries. But when we add in a factor for the Fed's pace of purchases over the past six weeks, we do find that they've been a statistically significant driver of rates. And even with what the Fed is buying right now, the pace, of which has been tapered down from at its peak $75 billion a day down to $8 billion, this is a number which is still um, four to five times higher than we saw on the average daily run rate during the QE3 program during 2013 through 2014. And when we look at the impact of those purchases on rate levels, we find that every $100 billion 10-year equivalents and purchases over a month period has tended to lower 10-year yields by approximately six basis points. So in aggregate, the Fed has bought uh, over $400 billion in 10-year equivalents over the past month. And when we apply that, one can say that this factor has um, probably impacted long-term rates by 25 to 30 basis points versus where you would expect them to be just Taking into account the market's Fed and inflation and growth expectations, so sitting here right around sixty-five basis points, one would think that ten-year yields actually should be closer to ninety to ninety-five basis points um, if it weren't for the Fed's purchases. And we've seen a rapid pace of tapering from seventy-five billion down to eight. But we do think that the path of tapering from here is much slower for a couple of reasons. One, market functioning has improved substantially, and we don't think the Fed wants to upset the apple cart. So any move to a slower pace of purchases will be turning the dial a bit more slowly to ensure that some of the damage that was done to the markets um, in the month of March does sort of not come back right now, particularly because we've got this changing landscape with respect to regulation. The Fed has temporarily excluded treasuries and reserves from its denominator of its supplementary leverage ratio calculation. But we don't know if this is going to be a permanent change or whether it will apply to depository institutions that are not regulated by the Fed. So until we get a better sense of that, we think the Fed will be much slower to sort of taper the pace of purchases. And we've even seen that over the past week, the Fed only went from $10 billion a day down to $8 billion a day. And I think that gives us a glide path into a more normalized pace of purchases going forward.
0: And I guess another important dynamic, especially as the Fed is stepping away, is the supply side of the story. So Treasury has issued a record amount of T-bills and will soon be ramping up note bond issuance to fund these deficits that are projected to reach close to 20% of GDP. So that's the highest since the World War II period. How does this enter into your view on rates?
2: It's actually a piece of our forecast for the balance of the year. If we are right, and once we get through this phase of shelter at home across the U.S. and the economy does begin to recover and heal in the second half, that in itself should contribute to modestly higher yields but aside from that you mentioned it we're looking for a substantial increase in longer term treasury issuance over the balance of the year we have seen already 1.4 trillion in t bill issuance just over the past 4 weeks which is a record but we have the may refunding announcement later this week at which point we expect the treasury department to start to increase its suite of longer term auction sizes and we've already seen some small increases there but we also get the reintroduction of the 20 year bond and if we think about this in duration terms we're going to see from May onwards about a 25% increase in monthly duration supply in the treasury market. So if we're right, and this is happening at the same time that the Fed is pulling back on its pace of purchases, we see a path to slightly higher rate levels over the balance of the year. And we think after they bottom out close to the middle of the year, that if we're right, 10-year yields should be closer to 1% by the end of the year than their current levels around 65 basis points.
0: Okay. So Mike, let's go back to the playbook here. I mean, you mentioned the Fed could turn to forward guidance and expanded QE, um, while yield curve control is probably the last option. Do you think the Fed would consider YCC if supply pushes yields up? Is 1% 10 years really a problem for the Fed?
1: Right. So as you mentioned, uh, the the playbook really has three potential tools, enhanced forward guidance. This is something like an Evans rule, which would tie uh, the timing of rate hikes to economic variables. Uh and there is some speculation this time around it could be tied more to inflation outcomes because there's little prospect of uh returning a two percent PCE inflation anytime soon. So that would be one way to anchor rate expectations lower. Uh the second thing in the playbook is asset purchases, or more commonly known as QE, uh, which, you know, as Jay's mentioned, has been used mostly now for market functioning purposes, but could be used. Uh, more to keep interest rates down, if the Fed saw that interest rates were unduly high, and then the third thing uh, is yield curve control, or as the Fed likes to call it, interest rate caps. This is the third and last possibility because uh, the Fed studied this last year and they had some reservations about it. So I think if uh, if we got to the point where interest rates were judged to be unduly high, which currently certainly isn't the case, but if we got to that, we think the preference would be for uh, forward guidance, uh, asset purchases and then interest rate caps only as a last resort, even though the Fed uh, didn't have a very favorable view of them when they studied interest rate caps last year. In this environment, we can't really rule anything out, but we do think the first two options would be for guidance and asset purchases.
0: So you both pointed out that we can draw on the experience of YCC in the World War II period. Jay, can you talk about what the Fed did then and how it compares with the current purchase program?
2: Sure. So in, in World War II... You know, Mike did talk about interest rate caps um, and large, and you talked about large deficits. And in that period, the stock of government debt over a five-year period between 1940 and 1945, uh, it quintupled from about 50 billion outstanding to over 260 billion. And during that period, the Fed did establish interest rate targets to keep rates anchored. And at the short end of the curve, it held T-bills pegged at three eighths of a percent, and longer out the curve, the ten-year at two percent, and uh, really, what was going on there is the Fed was meeting the demand um, for the market's demand for duration shorter duration and longer duration product. and they were effective interest rate caps. and the Fed ended up buying about nine percent of GDP in the treasury market and 10 percent of all federal government debt outstanding over that period. And what the Fed was doing was independent from how the Treasury was managing its debt management strategy. So it effectively pegged interest rates through these caps and it substantially increased the size of its soma portfolio uh, over the period as the soma rose from about 2 billion in size before the war to 24 billion by the end but it was also meeting the market's needs as with rates relatively stable at the back end of the curve due to effective pegs there was higher demand for longer duration product from investors and in fact the fed sold most of its longer dated holdings to sell to the public and bought back many bills because of the effectiveness of those caps so Um, it did keep rates pegged for for a five-year period during that era.
0: So Mike, uh, what do you think we learned from that experience and how do current savings patterns fit into the story here?
1: I think what we learned from that experience is that when we think about treasury supply and deficits, uh, we also have to think about treasury demand or the saving investment imbalance uh, in the rest of the economy. So deficits have to be financed either by foreigners or by domestic saving, uh, what's left over after. It funds uh, investment, uh, and I think what you saw in World War II was a big pickup in saving. Part of that was because of um, various restrictions on on consumption. In a way, saving was almost forced up, and you also had a big decline in private uh, investment spending. Uh, and for that reason, you know most of that deficit uh, was financed uh, domestically by domestic private agents. I should say. Uh, and I think we could see at least qualitatively something similar this time around. So last week we saw that the personal saving rate in March went from eight uh, percent to thirteen uh, percent, so a five percentage point increase. And we're likely to see that private investment, which went down some in the first quarter, is going to probably go down quite a bit more uh, in the second quarter. And so I think what we learned uh, in World War II is probably uh, qualitatively what we're going to see this time around, which is a lot of saving, uh, some of it forced by the stay-at-home uh, orders, and then probably a big decline in, in investments. So I think, uh, at least qualitatively, we could see something similar uh, in this episode, uh, similar to what we saw uh, in the World War II episode.
0: Great. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Jay. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Institutional clients of J. P. Morgan can find more on these topics on J. P. Morgan Markets at jpmm.com or reaching out directly with questions. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 4th, 2020.